Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, January 13th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. More classified documents are found in Biden's garage. Kyiv said it's holding on to Solidar. The U.S. and Japan bolster military ties. A suicide bomb kills several in Afghanistan. Australia and Papua New Guinea pledge a new security pact. The U.S. House passes a born-alive abortion bill. Pakistan denies ties to uranium found at Heathrow. Over 17 are killed in California storms. A NASA rover finds gemstones on Mars. And a Syrian refugee who lived in an airport becomes a Canadian citizen. In our top story, new classified Biden docs have been discovered and a special counsel has been appointed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Wall Street Journal, New York Post, USA Today, CNBC and Bloomberg. U.S. President Biden is facing new political controversy after news broke that the White House Counsel's Office had found more government records from the Obama-Biden administration at a second location, the garage of one of the president's homes in Delaware. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel, Robert Hur, to oversee an investigation. According to Biden's lawyer, Richard Sauber, all but one of these documents were found in storage space in the president's Wilmington residence garage, adding that one page was discovered among stored materials in an adjacent room. None were found in his Rehoboth beach home. Among the first batch of 10 documents were reportedly intelligence memos and other materials concerning Iran, Ukraine, and the UK. They were dated between 2013 and 2016 and mixed in with Biden family documents, including funeral arrangement details for the president's late son, Beau. When the president addressed the matter on Tuesday, he didn't indicate that other locations would be searched, maintaining that officials had acted appropriately when the November 2nd discovery was made and that they were cooperating with the DOJ review. However, in response to the latest discovery, he said, quote, my Corvette is in a locked garage. So it's not like they're sitting out on the street. He added that he has, quote, fully cooperated with the Justice Department's review. Biden's past criticism of Trump for storing classified information at his private estate has opened him up to accusations of hypocrisy and given Republicans investigating him more ammunition. Democrats have defended Biden by arguing his aides immediately returned the classified documents upon discovery whereas Trump fought to keep them. While this political story has generated the expected narratives, we've got a Democratic narrative from Newsweek. There's a big difference between the Trump and Biden cases. Trump violated the law by possessing classified papers and attempting to cover up his actions. The former president is facing a serious investigation because he knowingly held sensitive information and actively worked to keep it from the archives. Biden did neither of these things, thus the GOP claims of Biden hypocrisy are unfounded. Counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Town Hall. The only important difference between the two cases is that Biden was vice president when he took the documents to his private office, and vice presidents don't have the same declassification powers as presidents. It will be interesting to see whether the DOJ sends teams to raid Biden's residences, as they did with Trump, or if there continues to be a double standard. And we have a cynical narrative from CNN. Neither Trump nor Biden should have ever mishandled any classified information, and both should be investigated per the severity of their violations. However, the overclassification of U.S. government documents has been raised for over a decade, and the bureaucracy of the federal government has produced an administrative nightmare. 
There must be accountability and reforms to a flawed classification system. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. We've reached day 323 of the fighting in Ukraine as a Ukrainian minister claims Kyiv is holding on to Solidar in Donetsk. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Arabia, President Zelensky's website, the BBC News, the Donetsk News Agency, Ukraine Forum, and TASS. Ukraine's Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Malyar said on Thursday that the country's forces are holding on to the Donetsk town of Solidar, contradicting earlier claims from Russia's Wagner mercenary group that it had taken control of the town. The message was echoed by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in his nightly address on Wednesday. Now the terrorist state and its propagandists are trying to pretend that they have achieved success in Solidar, he said. However, fighting continues, Zelensky stated. Meanwhile, on Thursday, the Wagner Group further claimed to have discovered the body of one of two Britons reported missing in Ukraine. Andrew Bagshaw, 48, and Chris Perry, 28, were last seen heading to Solidar before their families raised the alarm over their disappearance earlier in the week, without naming which body they allegedly discovered. Wagner posted pictures of documents said to belong to both men, which they stated had been carried by the individual. Russian sources described the pair as fighters though British media referred to them as aid workers. A Downing Street spokesperson said they could not verify the reports, but commented that they were deeply concerning. Elsewhere in Donetsk, Ukrainian officials said one civilian had been killed in the region over the past day. Pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, reported that one civilian was killed and four more were injured for the same time period. In other regions of Ukraine, officials reported that one civilian was killed and five more were injured in Kherson. Three civilians were also injured in Zaporizhia, while one person was injured in Dnipropetrovsk. Russian attacks were also recorded in the regions of Mykolaiv and Cherniv, without reports of related civilian casualties. Meanwhile, Russia confirmed that it promoted its military chief of general staff, Valery Gerasimov, to the role of top commander of its forces in Ukraine on Thursday. In a statement from Russia's defense ministry, it said the appointment was made in order to tackle a broader scope of missions as well as to have closer coordination among military branches. Those were the facts, and there are three spins that have emerged beginning with a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. After having taken Solidar, Russia can now use freed-up forces to achieve similar results in Bakhmut, which it will be able to attack from multiple directions. The success in Solidar also opens the door for further Russian advances in the wider Donetsk region. We have an anti-Russian narrative from Pravda. Russia is spreading false news about the capture of Solidar in order to give its population positive news from an otherwise disastrous military campaign. Russia is also desperately trying to shore up support ahead of future mobilization drives. And there's a nerd narrative. It says that there is a 20% chance that Ukraine will have de facto control of at least 90% of the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts by January 1st, 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The United States and Japan bolster military ties. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, New York Times, South China Morning Post, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and Washington Post. The U.S. and Japan announced on Wednesday a significant strengthening of their military relationship, which includes the formation of a U.S. Marine unit on the southern Japanese island of Okinawa designed for intelligence gathering, surveillance, and the ability to fire anti-ship missiles 
Both Japan and the U.S. reportedly perceive a greater military threat from China, North Korea, and Russia, especially in light of recent declarations of stronger ties between those three nations. The U.S. and Japan's partnership that calls on each side to come to the other's defense, codified in Article 5 of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, is deepened and is extending the scope of their cooperation across land, sea, air, and now into cyber and outer space. The reinforced security cooperation, quote, to prevail in a new era of strategic competition, follows a year of U.S.-Japanese talks and comes after Japan last month announced its most extensive military buildup since World War II, reportedly prompted by perceptions of China's increasingly aggressive behavior in the region. Both countries reportedly agreed to adjust the U.S. troop presence on Okinawa, including improving anti-ship capabilities in the event of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan or other geopolitical tensions. U.S. President Biden and Japanese Prime Minister Kishida will meet Friday to underscore the significance of deepening relations. A senior administration official speaking on condition of anonymity said, quote, This is about Japan essentially aligning with the United States, in many ways like a NATO ally. Thanks for the facts, Eric. We have an anti-China narrative on this story from the Wall Street Journal. Japan, which holds the largest permanent contingent of U.S. forces overseas, can no longer solely rely on U.S. support, a fact that this latest plan acknowledges. This new strategy fortifies the U.S. and Japan's vigor and will reshape their ability to promote peace and protect the Indo-Pacific region as China attempts to aggressively exert its influence. And a pro-China narrative is courtesy of Global Times. Japan is groundlessly discrediting China. By adopting this new policy, Japan is putting itself on a more offensive footing and deviating from its commitment to China-Japan relations and the common understanding between the two countries. Hyping up the so-called China threat to find an excuse for its military buildup and alignment with the West is doomed to fail. And we have another statistics-based nerd narrative. This one says there's a 70% chance that Japan's self-defense forces will have tested a Tomahawk missile by mid-2027. Terror in Afghanistan as a deadly suicide blast occurs outside the foreign ministry. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the South China Morning Post, France 24, BBC News, and Al Jazeera. A suspected suicide bombing on Wednesday outside the foreign ministry in the Afghan capital of Kabul reportedly killed numerous people and injured many more. Ustad Faridun, an official in the Ministry of Information under the Taliban government, said at least 20 people had been killed, while Kabul police chief spokesman Khalid Zadran put the official death toll at five. The Islamic State in Khorasan Province, or ISKP, the local offshoot of the Islamic State, or IS group, claimed responsibility for the suicide attack, which it said killed at least 20 people, including several diplomatic employees. According to the Afghan Ministry of Information and Culture, the blast occurred when a Chinese delegation was supposed to meet the Taliban at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. However, a senior official said that no foreigners were present at that time. Since the Taliban resumed power in 2021, a string of attacks has killed and wounded several foreign nationals and hundreds of Afghans, including members of the country's minority communities. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. And the diplomat is giving us our first spin from this story, and it is a pro-establishment narrative. The latest devastating bombing reminds the world that, despite claims to the contrary, the Taliban are incapable of providing security for the Afghan people. Meanwhile, the ISPK's terror campaign is rampant. 
and the IS offshoot is busy infiltrating Central, South, and West Asia. By continuing to suppress Afghan ethnic and religious minorities, the Taliban regime is playing into the hands of the ISKP, contributing to the surge of local terror. And the national news brings us the establishment critical narrative. It's primarily the Afghan population that suffers from the terror of groups like ISKP. While the Taliban's inability to provide security is partially responsible, the suffering is further exacerbated by the withdrawal of Western NGOs and sanctions against Afghanistan a policy of isolating the country that's counterproductive. The point isn't to recognize the Taliban regime, but to develop a balanced Afghanistan policy. Narrative C for this story is being provided by Eurasianet. With its terror campaign, the ISKP is also trying to keep foreign powers from bolstering ties with Kabul. The Chinese government, for example, may not officially recognize the Taliban, but Beijing maintains diplomatic relations with the country, and plans to invest in Afghanistan's natural resources, making the Chinese a prime ISKP target. In our next story, Australia and Papua New Guinea have pledged a new security pact. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, Reuters, Australia Broadcasting Corporation, and RFA.org. In a joint statement on Thursday, Australia and Papua New Guinea, or PNG, pledged to execute a new security pact over the next four months that will include provisions aimed at combating climate change and protecting independence, sovereignty, and resilience. Marking the first address to PNG's parliament by a foreign leader since its independence in 1975, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said the bilateral security treaty would bolster the economic and security interests of both nations with negotiations set to conclude in April and the treaty signed in June. Referring to the issues of the region, PNG Prime Minister James Marape cited his nation's location at the center of the Indo-Pacific confluence, adding that in order for PNG to participate in a safer Indo-Pacific region, PNG herself must be stronger economically. The pact comes as Australia and its Western allies try to shutter China's growing ambitions in the region including Beijing's new pact with the Solomon Islands in April of 2022. Both countries have denied that the China-Solomon Islands agreement hurried the new security pact, with Prime Minister Marape clarifying that, quote, the PNG-China relationship remains the PNG-China relationship. At no instance was China or any other nation brought into the picture. Even though PNG will sign a pact with Australia, the nation will reportedly continue to strengthen its ties with China which has become an economic supporter of PNG exports and is currently building a hospital for its military. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have an establishment critical narrative from anti-war. As recently as last year, Papua New Guinea's prime minister had expressed his concerns over being caught in the middle of a conflict between China and the West. Though the Indo-Pacific nation has acknowledged the convenience of military relations with Australia given their close proximity, it's clear that, along with many other regional countries, it has no desire to provoke China the way the U.S. and its major allies have been doing. A pro-establishment narrative is coming from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. As Australia and PNG are less than three miles from each other at their closest points, their relationship is unique. Due to this fact, it's important for Australia to continue to support its neighbors in a way that bolsters their growth and resilience. Though Albanese must be careful not to make PNG severely dependent on Australia aid, this pact is both an economic and military win for both countries in the face of China's growing Indo-Pacific footprint. 
And we have a nerd narrative on this story as well. It says that there's a 16% chance that there will be a U.S.-China war by the year 2035, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. You saw the earlier article with Japan and the U.S. pairing up, and now this uh, this article, it's kind of seeing all the countries pair up militarily makes me nervous. It's definitely something you can't ignore. Who are you going to pair up with, Scott? Well, I'm buddied up with you. We're fine. Okay, that's right, man. Yeah. Dude, I'll share a foxhole with you any day. <laughs> that's true. I got a couple <laughs> cans of beans. All right. Yeah, we gotta, <laughs> yeah we're fine. <laughs> the U.S. House passes the Born Alive abortion bill. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Independent, Newsweek, and CBS News. The Republican-controlled U.S. House on Wednesday voted 220 to 210 in favor of the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. The bill requires that health care providers attempt to save the life of an infant in the rare instance the baby is born alive during or after an abortion. Providers who don't comply could face fines or prison. One Democrat voted in favor of the bill, which isn't expected to survive a vote in the Democrat-controlled Senate. The bill also calls for a prohibition on the intentional killing of a born-alive child, which is already illegal under U.S. law. This bill is the first anti-abortion legislation to clear the House since the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court in June of 2022. Abortion has been just one of the issues the newly elected House has been working on since being sworn in last week. Other bills have dealt with U.S. business relations with China and an inquiry into allegations of bias among federal investigators when it comes to conservatives. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. The Democratic narrative is the first spin coming from CNN. This bill is an unnecessary and burdensome answer to a fictitious situation, as it's already illegal to kill a baby that survives an abortion. The decision to vote on it is the GOP's attempt to send a united message on their abortion stance as they try to keep a razor-thin majority together. And National Review brings us the Republican narrative. While current legislation may prevent infants who survive an abortion from being killed, it doesn't include penalties for failing to provide proper care to the child. Those born after failed late-term abortions inarguably must be treated with the same respect and level of care afforded to every living person, and this legislation would go a long way in achieving this. And a nerd narrative coming from Metaculus says there's a 4% chance that elective abortion before the gestational age of 16 weeks will be banned nationally in the U.S. before the year 2030. In our next story, Pakistan claims no ties to uranium in a package at a United Kingdom airport. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Guardian, Telegraph and BBC News. Pakistan has rejected allegations in the British press that a package containing uranium, which arrived at London's Heathrow Airport in December, originated from the South Asian nation. A discovery of metal bars embedded with uranium at Heathrow in late December triggered a counter-terrorism investigation. The probe focused on why the substance was concealed in an airplane shipment of scrap metal. Scotland Yard has said that the amount of contaminated material was, quote, extremely small, and posed no threat to the public. Commander Richard Smith, the head of the Met's Counter-Terror Command, has said that the investigation remains ongoing but does not appear to be linked to any direct threat. A Pakistan Foreign Ministry spokesperson suggested that allegations that the package was from Pakistan were not factual and that no information suggesting this had been shared. Security experts have suggested if the investigation finds the package did originate from Pakistan, it would indicate gross negligence in the country as the radioactive bars would have managed to pass through multiple scanning and security checks at a Pakistani airport. 
We've got a pro-establishment narrative on this story from The Telegraph. The shipment of uranium into Heathrow is worrying. Uranium is a dangerous substance that could have been used to make a dirty bomb. There are even concerns that the smuggling of the substance could have been part of a wider plot by state-backed Iranian terrorists to smuggle material into the country in order to target UK-based dissidents opposed to the regime in Tehran. And an establishment-critical narrative coming from Al Jazeera. Reports blaming Pakistan for the package containing uranium may unjustifiably damage the country's reputation. No information on the case has been officially shared with Pakistani authorities. A more efficient and detailed investigation can happen if relevant information is shared with the Pakistani side. The UK needs to involve Pakistani authorities before making unsubstantiated claims. Over 17 are dead as storms continue to batter California. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Forbes, Fox News, CNBC, and AccuWeather. An unprecedented wave of storms continues to wreak havoc in California, with floodwaters inundating neighborhoods and killing at least 17 people, as well as releasing sewage into flooded streets. Five atmospheric rivers, long, narrow regions in the atmosphere that can carry moisture thousands of miles, have struck California in the last two weeks, causing record flooding and leaving 5 million people under flood watches. Northern and Central California have taken the brunt of the storms, but cities like Los Angeles and San Diego now face the threat of flash flooding and mudslides as the system is moving south. Governor Gavin Newsom addressed the situation during a visit to the town of Capitola on the Santa Cruz coast, stating, We've had less people die in the last two years of major wildfires in California than have died since New Year's Day related to this weather. On Monday, President Biden declared a state of emergency in California, thereby authorizing the Department of Homeland Security and FEMA to coordinate disaster relief efforts and provide assistance. The storm doesn't yet appear to be nearing its end, as more rain is expected to drench the West Coast this weekend. However, parts of Southern and Central California are expected to get a short reprieve from the deluge. Those were the facts, and we do have spins coming from this story as well, beginning with Narrative A, being provided by Vox. We are now at a point in the climate crisis where its devastating effects are not just theoretical, but are manifesting before our eyes. California has gone from years of severe drought to mass flooding in a two-week span. This extreme change is not natural and exemplifies the kind of weather whiplash caused by climate change. And Narrative B comes from the Daily Caller. Climate change continues to be the establishment's crutch whenever attempting to explain any natural phenomenon. Californian politicians and meteorologists seem more concerned with pushing climate propaganda than they are with helping people amid a natural disaster. Metaculus is chiming in for this story as well with a nerd narrative. Says there's a 5% chance that if a global catastrophe occurs before the year 2100, it will principally be caused by human-made climate change or geoengineering. A NASA rover finds gemstones on Mars. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Fizz.org, The Sun, Arizona State University, Space.com, and Live Science. NASA's Curiosity rover has discovered opals, gemstones formed by silica alteration by water, on the red planet's Gale Crater. Arizona State University researchers noticed fracture halos, rings of light-toned rocks, by analyzing data and images beamed back by NASA's Curiosity rover, which has been exploring the crater since 2012. Further tests confirmed the opal-rich composition of these fracture halos. 
According to a study published last month in the Journal of Geophysical Research, Planets, the discovery of water-rich opals suggests the crater, a 96-mile-wide impact basin with a layered mountain in the middle, is actually a dried-up lake bed. The findings mean Mars' subsurface networks and fractures would have once provided water-rich and radiation-shielded conditions that would have been much more habitable than the harsh modern-day conditions at the surface. Researchers believe the discovery improves the chances of finding evidence of microbial life on Mars, as the data indicates other regions of the Red Planet, such as Jezero Crater, could also be rich in water-based opal gemstones. The realization that water must have survived in Gale Crater long after the lake dried shows that life could have been on Mars for longer than previously thought. Researchers speculate that the Red Planet showed signs of life up until 2.9 billion years ago. Mars is thought to be approximately 4.6 billion years old. Scott, thanks for the facts from that interesting story. And the first spin is Narrative A being provided by Astrobiology at NASA. As ice has already been found at the poles of Mars, the discovery that water was once within these immensely dry craters proves the planet was undoubtedly a much wetter place a long time ago. Water facilitates life on Earth. And if more of it is found in these crater basins, Mars might one day make for a habitable environment for human beings. Narrative B comes from BGR. Though it's a possibility the idea of finding life on Mars, let alone the ability of humans to live there one day, is a big stretch. Even if vast amounts of water and life are found in the planet's subsurface areas, it's because they are also shielded from the sun's dangerous radiation, something surfaces above can't be protected from due to Mars's thin atmosphere. And unsurprisingly, there's a nerd narrative for this story, saying that there's a 12% chance that we will find life on Mars by the year 2050, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. They've already found life on Mars. I mean, aren't men from Mars? I mean, come on, right, Scott. And that's to say nothing of Venus, of course. Right, right. In our final story, a Syrian refugee who lived in an airport becomes a Canadian citizen. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Malay Mail, Speakers Canada, Al Jazeera, BBC News, and Canada Today. Hassan Al-Kantar the now 41-year-old Syrian refugee who became stranded in Malaysia's Kuala Lumpur International Airport in 2018 for seven months and spent two months in a Malaysian detention center, was officially granted Canadian citizenship on Wednesday. With his Canadian passport, Kantar hopes to finally see his family again, whose escape from Syria to Egypt he managed to help arrange four months ago and also travel the world to help displaced refugees. Kantar became a marketing insurance manager in the UAE in 2006, but his work permit expired in 2011, the same year that mass protests and civil war broke out in Syria. This led to him staying in the UAE illegally for six years, as the Syrian embassy refused to renew his passport. In 2017, the UAE deported Kantar to Malaysia, one of the few countries where Syrians are granted visa-free entry. But in the absence of legal immigration papers, he could neither stay in Malaysia nor leave the country. Quote, Today I am stateless no more, he told Al Jazeera ahead of the virtual citizenship ceremony. Kantar's plight received global attention after he began tweeting videos detailing his ordeal from the airport. In November of 2018, the British Columbia Muslim Association and Canada Caring Society sponsored him to come to Canada with refugee status. According to the UN, a decade of war in Syria has killed more than 350,000 people and displaced over 13 million. 
All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an establishment-critical narrative from Middle East Eye. Kantar's resettlement is just a drop in the bucket. The Syrian war is not over, and it continues to be a huge global crisis, still affecting millions of lives. While the West has shifted its focus to the war in Ukraine, it must not wash its hands of Syrian refugees languishing in camps in Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey who are facing racism, discrimination, interrogations, and unwarranted jail terms for years. And a pro-establishment narrative coming from The Conversation. Though it's impossible to offer all displaced refugees a dignified life, this case shows that Western nations and institutions can make an important difference. Canada is currently among the few countries bearing a disproportionate amount of responsibility. Since a staggering high number of people need protection, Canada must adopt an even more uniform, fair, and sustainable refugee policy, and other nations can follow suit. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance at least 186,000 refugees will be admitted to the U.S. in the three-year period ending in 2024. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, January 13th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.